chapter number 10 this morning. We have seen Christ as the door. I am the door. And Christ as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Two I am statements here in John chapter number 10. And we are now coming to the close of this chapter, of this dialogue, and and really a, a sermon as Jesus healed the blind man who had been born blind, and he had used that as a backdrop or a background for this sermon, for this discourse. And there is some dialogue with the Jews, the religious leaders, who have been antagonistic and opposed to Jesus. We'll see once again their hatred come to a boiling point here again in this passage that we're looking at this morning. We see Jesus with boldness, with courage, with compassion, with love, walking into the midst of those who hated him, who sought to kill him, who were persecuting him, who questioned him, and with ill will, desired to try to find some fault in him. He courageously, compassionately, with love, continues to proclaim the truth. And again, I can't help but think that We're not in a similar type of situation in our culture where the pressure from the outside, the the carnality and the wickedness, the ungodliness of our culture, it seems that more and more we are walking every day into places of employment, into places of recreation, into lots of different areas where we are facing opposition and we are having to use biblical discernment. We really have to have our biblical worldview glasses on and lenses on because we are having to make decisions like we've never had to before. We're having to face opposition in some ways like we've never had to before, even down to the pronouns that we use. We used to just teach pronouns in grammar as a part of speech, and now they have become controversial and even words of violence to some people. It's unbelievable how upside down our culture is because we, in so many ways, have rejected God, rejected God's word, and rejected God's son, Jesus Christ. And we're seeing a group of people who are in the midst of that rejection, yet there are some in the group who are hearing the words of truth and receive the words of truth and trust Christ. We see that even here at the end of this chapter. So going back a couple of weeks, I won't go back and review the the whole sermon, but we, we saw where Christ's disciples, they know and they follow him. They follow the good shepherd. We used the word validity to kind of summarize that point a couple of weeks ago. The good shepherd... His sheep, they know His voice and they follow Him. Again, Jesus, not that long ago, had referred to Himself as the door, as the good shepherd. Two of those seven I am statements in the book of John that speak to Christ being the I am, the Lord God Jehovah. Those who were not His sheep, they did not recognize His voice. If they would believe in Him, then they would be His sheep and they would recognize His voice. Those who do not recognize his voice are those who are trying to come into the sheepfold some other way. They're following the thief, the robber, the hireling. 
They have tried to enter in the sheepfold by the broad way instead of by the narrow way. They have tried to enter into the sheepfold some other way instead of by the door, instead of following the voice of the good shepherd. So they were lost. They were unsaved. They were following the false teachers, the thieves, the robbers, and the hirelings that Jesus was clearly implying was the religious leaders. Those Jews who knew much of the Old Testament scripture had even memorized or had been responsible for writing as scribes, as lawyers even, portions of the Old Testament, yet they were rejecting those very truths that spoke of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was before them preaching the truth of God to them. Those thieves, those robbers, those hirelings included those religious leaders who were the false teachers, the blind leading the blind. And Christ is calling out for them to repent of their sins and to come to him, to hear his voice and to enter into the sheepfold by the door. We've also seen in this passage, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that Christ's sheep are eternally secure. We go back to verse 28, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand. Once you enter into the sheepfold by Christ, repentance of one's sins and faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Those who are truly Christ's sheep, they cannot lose their salvation. We just read there in verse 28, they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of the Father's hand. They are kept in the Father's hand. You must be a genuine sheep to enjoy these privileges. But if you are a genuine sheep, a true sheep, then you have no fear of losing your salvation. You are kept by the power of God. You cannot undo the propitiation. You cannot undo the justification. You cannot undo the soteriological principles that only God could do. Once saved, always saved. This is a great passage on assurance of salvation. I know that some people, they have us fooled. We know that there will, some, there will be some people who will hear, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name done many marvelous works, and they will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Those are the ones that I know. Sometimes they're hypocrites. They sometimes have us fooled. I know sometimes it's, it's a struggle. The carnal Christian of 1 Corinthians 3 is a struggle for us. But we know that those who are truly born again cannot be unborn. A person who is truly born again will remain by the power of God, kept in the hand of God. They are eternally secure. That's a humbling thought. That's a principle, a truth that should motivate us to serve our Lord more, to serve Him better. That should motivate us to have confidence in doing the Lord's work, in serving Him with courage, with strength. The doctrine of eternal security is not a license to sin. 
Paul dealt with that in the book of Romans. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And in very strong terms, Paul says, God forbid. God forbid that we should continue in sin. The doctrine of eternal security is not a license to sin. Those who see it that way quite possibly are not truly born again because they have a total misunderstanding of this doctrine of eternal security. So we've seen that Christ's disciples know and follow him. We use, again, the word validity. But secondly, we also see here in this passage that Christ declared himself to be equal with God. And we use the word declaration as our summary word. Christ claimed here in this passage that he and the Father are one. So God the Father and God the Son keep the sheep. So there is a keeping of the sheep that is done by God the Father and God the Son. And in that statement, Jesus is speaking to eternal security, but he's clearly speaking to his deity. One of the clearest, one of the boldest statements in all of Scripture that Jesus Christ is God. Christ had already made statements declaring his deity, but this time he stated the fact very succinctly. I and my Father are one. Jesus had taught that God was his Father. And they understood, the Jews understood, that when Jesus made this statement, that he was declaring himself to be God, and they saw it as blasphemy. We'll see it in this passage. They understood very clearly the statement that Jesus was saying. Jesus did not mumble. Jesus did not make some ambiguous reference. Jesus did not make some complicated statement, some confusing statement. He made a very bold, a very clear, a very concise statement that he is God. I and the Father are one. They are the very same in essence, in nature, in will, and in character. Though they remain two separate persons of the Trinity. Again, this is not any way, shape, or form a denial of the Trinity. One God in three persons. We accept the doctrine of the Trinity by faith. Because the Bible teaches it. So we believe it. It's hard for us in our little peewee brains. And I have gone to Bible college and I've gone to seminary and I don't have the brains of nearly the guys that I read after. The boys are doing a Bible class in school, in our home school, and they had to do a project the other day. And I went over to the bookshelf and I pulled two two theology books off the shelf that I had used. One of them was the theology book that I used for seminary and it was like that big I walked in and they were doing this little project and I opened that up and we were going in and I remember having to read sometimes hundreds of pages of men who have far more brains than I do and even they could not fully completely wrap their minds around the Trinity one God in three persons but we believe in God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And they are, there are illustrations. I grew up and I heard the illustration of the egg. You have the shell, you have the yolk, and you have 
whatever the yolk and the yellow and all that, and trying to get all the three parts of the egg and explaining that that's the, the trinity. It's not a good illustration. It's something to try to help a little kid grasp the oneness of the trinity, the oneness of God. There's only one God, but the egg still falls short of explaining the essence of the trinity, one God in three persons. Here is Jesus Christ making it emphatically clear that he is God. And Paul continues that same doctrine in Colossians 1 in verse 15 where he says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? The writer of the book of Hebrews, by the inspiration of God, wrote in Hebrews 1 and verses 1 through 3, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manner spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Philippians 2 and verse number 6, who being in the form of God, speaking of Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Colossians 2 and verse number 9, we read again as Paul writes, for in him, that is in Christ, in Jesus, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus Christ is God. There has been a survey recently by two very reputable Christian sources. It was published just recently in the last couple of weeks. I, I know a little bit about both of these organizations, and they have a true understanding of salvation, of what a Christian is, of the gospel. And they did a survey, and the, the, the one statement, there were many statements, many theological statements, many, th many statements regarding the scripture, regarding the character of God and Christ, regarding the Bible. And here's, here's one result. Here's the statement in this survey. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. That statement, they asked people, they made that statement, and they asked if they agreed with that statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. In 2020, 30% of U.S. evangelicals agreed with that statement. Again, evangelical for this survey, this, these two organizations are gospel preaching organizations. I understand they're good Christian organizations. We would have our differences with them and some of their associations and things. But they understand the gospel, and I read what they qualified as an evangelical, and these were people who were claiming to be Bible believers, to be Christ followers, to have made a profession of faith in Christ. In 2020, 30% of U.S. evangelicals agreed with that statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. In 2022, this year, two years later, 43 percent of U.S. evangelicals agree with that statement, that Jesus was just a great teacher, but he was not God. 
That's getting close to 50% of people who claim to be Bible-believing Christ followers. That's sad. That's shameful. That same survey, going a little bit on a little, little bit of a rabbit trail, not too much, another statement asked of these people in this survey, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. In 2016, 48% of U.S. evangelicals agreed with that statement. That's saying that Jesus is not the only way to heaven. That is an outright denial of John 14 and verse number 6 where the Bible explicitly states Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Him. When I read that verse, I don't hear God having a hiccup or a cough or mumbling. He makes it emphatically clear. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Him. He is the door. He is the good shepherd. 46, excuse me, 48% of U.S. evangelicals agreed with that statement in the year 2016. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. If that's not bad enough, 2022, that percentage has gone up to 56%. That means there are churches today that are filled with people who reject that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. That means that there are churches today that are practically filled with people who don't even believe that Jesus Christ is God. No wonder we're in so much trouble. No wonder we're in a crisis of morality No wonder we are in such bad shape. And we're hoping with futility that even if the midterm elections go our way, that it will somehow save America. The midterm elections, no matter which way they go, aren't going to save America. When 48, excuse me, 56% of U.S. evangelicals agree with the statement, essentially saying that Jesus is not the only way to heaven. We are in big trouble. The church is in grave trouble. The fact that 43% of U.S. evangelicals in this year, 2022, say that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Totally undermining the authority of Scripture. Totally undermining absolute truths that essentially affect every other area. Because this is such a fundamental truth. You know, there are many churches and even Christian organizations, you can go on their websites, you can go to their handouts, and they will put the deity of Christ in their doctrinal statement. But you'll find out that many of them, they don't preach it, they don't teach it, And they certainly don't defend its fundamental value. And sadly, many of them will even broaden their associations to the point that they'll have religious associations, religious partnerships with liberals and progressive Christians who deny this foundational doctrine, this fundamental doctrine. And and, and without getting on, on too much of a soapbox here, do we realize that 
our church is an independent Baptist church in part because of the stand that men and women took years ago on this doctrine when major denominations began to compromise on foundational, fundamental doctrines such as this, there were many who left the denominations and started their own churches because they could no longer associate with a denomination that held to a position that denied the deity of Christ, that denied that Jesus Christ is the only way and other fundamental foundational doctrines. I I know from my limited history and and past, talking with Pastor Defoe years ago, and him telling me about how his father had to take a stand against a church group that was beginning to deny fundamental, foundational doctrines such as this, that were beginning to embrace in religious partnerships, in religious associations, in violation of 2 Corinthians 6, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. They were broadening their associations and bringing in and endorsing those who clearly denied the deity of Christ, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, and other fundamental doctrines. And I remember Pastor Defoe telling me stories of how his dad had to take a stand and had to pull the church out of that movement, out of that group, out of that association, out of that organization, and how Eagledale Baptist Church became an independent Baptist church. And Pastor Defoe Sr. had, in a sense, blood on his sword, so to speak, for having taken a stand. We have a historical root. We have historical roots that we need to be thankful for. We need to be thankful that Berean Baptist Church exists today and continues to take a stand upon these fundamental foundational doctrines. Because there has been a movement over the last 50 to 60 years, and it is bearing fruits in the immorality, in the licentiousness, in the ungodliness that is now in our culture because the salt has lost its savor. The light is no longer shining bright because evangelicals, those who claim Christ, are denying that He is God and denying that He is the only way to heaven. It matters what we believe. Doctrine demands duty. Belief affects behavior. Philosophy affects practice. We must continue to stand upon the Word of God. When Jesus said, I and my Father are one, that was an absolute truth that has practical application for the essence of the very gospel which saves men's eternal souls. So what does that say? That says that this is a doctrine with eternal implications and applications. Now, when I got saved as a young boy, did I understand all that I understand now about the deity of Christ? No. But when I got saved, when Jesus Christ forgave me of my sins, the capacity to understand and to accept and to believe this truth was placed within me by the Holy Spirit who came and indwelled me. 
So for me to accept this doctrine was no, not hard. Because I had the Holy Spirit who guides me into all truth. And I say that by the grace of God and to His glory. I don't deserve that. But when there is a denial that Jesus Christ is God, there is a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus Christ is not God, then there are no eternal applications of the gospel. Jesus was just a good man who died a martyr's death to set a good example. But if Jesus Christ is God, then the death of Christ on the cross has eternal implications and eternal applications. Able to save our souls from our sin. This is foundational. This is fundamental. This is a cardinal doctrine absolute truth that we must continue to uphold, to stand for, and to preach and to teach. We must not give up this doctrine. And how did the Jews, again, how did they respond? What was their response? They understood what he was saying. Evangelicals may be kind of confused, sadly. People will put their coexist bumper stickers on even though every single one of those symbols denies the truth about Jesus Christ. So there's no way they can coexist because there are contrary teachings that deny the truth of the Word of God represented by those symbols. But what was the Jews' response? These Jewish leaders. Look at verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. As they had done before, when Jesus made similar statements concerning his deity, they had taken up stones to kill him. Of course, they had no power to touch him because it was not his time. And again, they could not follow through with their execution, their murder, because it was not his time. They had no power over him. Jesus said he would lay down his life and he would take it up again right here in this very chapter. We read that earlier. And then he stops them short with a very piercing question. For which of those works? Let's look here at verse 32. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? I love how Jesus uses questions. I learned with students, I've learned even with my own kids, and sometimes we have to make statements. We have to say, go, do that. Sometimes we have to say, I am your father. I brought you into this world. I can take you out again. And your mother can do the same, okay? Sometimes we have to make those statements. But many times when we have to get to the heart, when we have to get to what they're thinking, we have to ask questions. I learned real quickly as an administrator, as a principal of a school, as the kids came down the hallway or as they were looking in the windows and they were in third grade and they were in the high school hallway looking through the high school classroom window. Young man, what are you doing here? Are you in high school? Are you in chemistry class? Are you in U.S. history? No. Okay, then why are you here? I don't know. (laughs) And then you go through the questions. Well, should you be going back to your classroom? Yes, sir. The one I always was... Shocked, and yet I wasn't. They're sitting in the office. Why are you here? I don't know. 
So you tell me that the teacher just decided out of a random pick just to pick your name and send you to the office. I guess. <laughs> Bring them down to my office and go through the 20 questions. And then I found out, well, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this and so on and so forth. Jesus asked a question. He stopped them in their tracks and he asked a piercing question. For which of those works do ye stone me? They couldn't answer. There was nothing that he had done to be deserving of murder, of execution. He was completely innocent. He was completely sinless. And he had done his works publicly. Everybody could see them. There was no doubt. We didn't need Instagram and Facebook and social media and YouTube and TikTok and all of the viral videos that are usually just a bunch of nonsense most of the time, right? They didn't need that. Jesus walked among them publicly doing his miracles, preaching. It was clear. There were many witnesses to his works. Which one of those do you stone me for? Oh, people have come along and they have made great boastful statements and turned out to be charlatans, to be frauds, to be false teachers. Jesus spoke the truth and he backed it up with his works, with his character, with his actions, which has to make application for us. Do we just speak the words or do we back it up with our life? Do we just say the right things around the right people or is it real? Is our Christianity real? Does our life back it up? Does our character put a stamp of approval in a sense upon the words that we speak? Oh, I'm a good Jesus follower. I'm a good Christian. How many of these percentages of evangelicals who deny fundamental doctrines would say, oh, I'm a good Christian? But doctrinally, they're corrupt. They're not even saved, but they claim to be an evangelical. Does our life match our words? Does our life back up our words? Many times, our evangelism with our words, as we have opportunity to share the actual gospel presentation, oftentimes, those unsaved people will only hear us if our life backs up what we are saying. If our life is a masquerade and they see our life being full of worldliness and carnality, not much different than them, then when we speak the truth or they ask us a question about our faith or they come to us and say, can you pray for me? Or whatever the conversation is, if our life doesn't back up the words of truth that we're saying, the truth will often fall on deaf ears. And many times our life is consistent, when our life is consistent and our character is righteous before God, they just know, don't they? And they come. You, you, could you pray for me? I'm going through this crisis in my life. Can, you seem, you seem to, to, to have it all figured out. And we turn around and we say, I don't have it all figured out, but because of the grace of God who saved me, I can tell you from the scriptures how we can have it figured out in the sense of forgiveness of our sins and how we can be redeemed. And that's the difference that Christ has made in my life, and I want that to be the same for you, and we can share the gospel, because our character, our life, backs up the truth of what we're saying. Christ's character, his works, his actions, his behavior, it backed up his words, the very things that, that, that God would be expected to do. Christ did those. His life matched his message. And he asked this question, and literally he is asking, what 
is the character of my works. Literally, if we went into the original language and we broke it down, it's hard for the English language to fully express what Jesus was saying. But literally, he is saying, what is the character of my works? What would they have to say? They would have to say the works that you are doing. They've even tacitly admitted it. Some of them have even brought it up and have received rebuke. Even Nicodemus by night came and he said to Jesus, you have to be of God. The works that you are doing, they are of God. They have to be of God. When it came up in their council earlier, they had to shut down whoever it was that brought that up because they knew the truth. The works that Jesus was doing were the works of God. He forced them to reveal their hearts. And what was their response? They accused him of blasphemy. They rejected his miracles, and now they rejected his message. And now they resorted to attempted murder. So we've seen already in this passage here, we've seen validity. The Christ's disciples know and they follow him. We've seen declaration. Christ declared himself to be equal with God. But thirdly, we see that God's word is truth. The scripture cannot be broken. We go down in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken... Say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Now we have to put on our thinking caps a little bit again. I love how the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. I love how... Jesus takes an Old Testament reference from Psalm 82 in verse 6 and makes an application. It seems a little confusing to us. We look here and we read in verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? He refers to the law, which they claim to be scholars of. They claim to be the authorities, the followers of. He's quoting from Psalm 82 in verse number 6. In Psalm 82 in verse 6, that word God, little g, God, is referring to some unjust judges who had God-like status. But in Psalm 82, God is declaring judgment on those little g gods. That word God there is not the word Elohim or Yahweh, Jehovah. It's simply the word Theos. And it's the little, it's with the little letter G, or the little letter T for Theo, so it's referring to a man who is in a deified state or has been given a godlike status. And Jesus was saying that if God can call men little G-gods, then what is wrong with him saying that he is the Son of God, capital S, capital G? That term, Theos, little G-god, can be applied to men. Now, we have to think through this a little bit. Jesus claimed to speak the words of God, so his words must be completely accurate. His words were backed up by his works. 
His works had to be from God. His works had to be God's works because no one else could do the things that he did. The gods, the little g-gods of Psalm 82 and verse 6 were corrupt, wicked judges who faced God's judgment. Jesus was completely perfect. He was the holy son of God. His works were the very works of God and not the works of some wicked man, some fraud, some false teacher, or some deified, godlike person given a high status who was a sinner and often immoral reprobates, though they had great authority, though they had great power, though they had great, maybe even, status in society. Jesus is God. He's sinless. He's the perfect, sinless, holy Son of God. He's not a reprobate, immoral judge, a sinner, who was condemned in Psalm 82 and verse 6, condemned by God. Judgment was coming. Christ's authority is supreme. His life was sinless. His works declared Him to be the very Son of God. He, and He alone, had the right to be called the Son of God. Now we elevate people into godlike status. We elevate people. We want someone to be our fearless leader. We want someone to come and to rescue this world and to lead us into some place of peace. And the Old Testament is full of imperfect prophets and imperfect priests and imperfect kings. But Jesus Christ is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And he's standing there before them, declaring himself to be God, the Son of God, the only begotten Son, the monogenes, the unique one and only Son of God, the very essence of God. God, I and my Father are one. And he's saying, if anybody has the authority to say it, I do because I am God. You deify corrupt judges who are deserving of judgment. And as a matter of fact, the scripture fulfilled. The scripture was fulfilled. Because those judges in Psalm 82 and verse 6, they were punished. They were judged for their sin. And Jesus, with that in mind, says the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken. What God promised about those unjust judges in Psalm 82 and verse 6 was perfectly fulfilled. What the Old Testament prophesies regarding me is completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Do we recognize, again, it's a, it, it takes a little bit of thought here for us to process through this. But Jesus is taking what we would otherwise consider an obscure verse in Psalm 82. And he is using a little bit of a twist on words. And he's saying, oh, you have no problem deifying, holding up in godlike status, mere men who are reprobate, immoral sinners. And look at our culture. The, the, the culture is clapping and celebrating some of the worst sinners, full of licentiousness, parading their evil and speaking blasphemous words from a platform and people are clapping and the likes and the follows and the subscribes are going through the roof. 
And Jesus, by the inspiration of God, says the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture that condemned those unjust judges and was fulfilled completely, the scripture is fulfilled in me as the Son of God. I wish I had time to go further and to explain this more, but there's an apologetics book that I read some years ago and I brought it back out. We have to understand from Matthew chapter number 5, verses 17 through 19, that not one promise, not one prophecy of the word of God will fail. All are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it's hard for us to comprehend this, but let me just read this with a little bit of time we have left. In this apologetics book, there's a list of many of the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ, from his birth to his ministry to his death. And then listen to this. These are some of the prophecies made about Christ hundreds of years, hundreds of years before his birth. Overall, overall, about 300 predictions stretched through all the books of the Old Testament. Peter Stoner, former chairman of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy of Pasadena City College, chairman of the Science Division of Westmont College and Professor Emeritus of Science at Westmont, wrote a book called Science Speaks in which he applied the mathematical principles of probability to various Old Testament predictions. In the chapter relating to Messianic Messianic prophecy, Stoner selected eight of the many predictions in Scripture relating to Christ's life and ministry and formulated the mathematical probability of their coming true in one man. He and his students wanted to know what the chances were that any one man, in accordance to predictive prophecy, would be born in Bethlehem, preceded by a forerunner, forerunner, enter Jerusalem as a king riding a donkey, be betrayed by his friend for 30 pieces of silver, be placed on trial, and though innocent, make no defense for himself and be crucified. What is the chance that any man might have lived from the day of these prophecies down to the present time and fulfilled all eight of these predictions? His answer, the chance calculates to one in 10 to the 17th power. That's, I believe, one, I believe that's 10 with 17 zeros after it. Now, we just covered that in math class. Josiah and I sat down and we did scientific notation. And it was lots of fun, wasn't it, Jesse? (laughs) One to the 17, one in 10 to the 17th power. The fulfillment of eight, and there were 300 prophecies regarding Jesus Christ. What kind of chance is that? Cover the state of Texas with silver dollars to a depth of two feet, then mark one of those silver dollars and drop it somewhere into the pile, stirring it thoroughly. The chance of a blindfolded man choosing the marked silver dollar is equal to the chances of all eight of those prophecies being fulfilled in one man in history. Yet there are not eight, but 300 predictions. Incredible. The scripture cannot be broken. Christ is the fulfillment of all those. He is God. I and the Father are one. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by him. We rest our faith in who Christ is. We rest our faith in the truth of the word of God, the written word, and Christ is the living word. We must not fear.
We must go forward with courage, with compassion, and with love, and continue to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and not be ashamed, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to be able to declare your word. Lord, we must not shy away from these eternal truths in a day in which there are attacks. And we've seen from even within the church, those who claim Christ don't even believe who you are and that you are the only way. Lord, we thank you for this truth. Lord, our faith rests upon it. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here who has not placed their faith and trust in you for their salvation, may today be the day of their salvation. May they turn from their sins and turn to Christ and your finished work on the cross and your resurrection be saved today. Lord, as believers, may we once again be strengthened and encouraged in our faith and our walk with you. And Lord, may we once again go out determined to live for you and to please you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand and find your hymnals there in front of you and turn in the hymnal to 408. We sang Blessed Assurance just a few moments ago. We'll sing once again stanza number one of Blessed Assurance. If God has spoken to your heart, you can do business with the Lord as we sing. If we can help you in any way after the service, we'd be happy.